This is Intersection. I'm Matthew Petty. After the guilty verdict in the trial of the former police officer charged with the murder of George Floyd, activists who've been protesting police brutality since last summer say there's still much more work to be done. Maxwell Frost, the national organising director with March for Our Lives, says the verdicts delivered accountability rather than justice. That comment came as Frost and others gathered for a vigil in front of Orlando City Hall on Tuesday night. People at the vigil lit candles and read the names of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Michael Brown and others who've been killed by police, and they vowed to keep pushing for justice. Frost joins me now to talk about what the George Floyd case means for those in Florida who are marching for social change. Well, Maxwell Frost, um, thanks again for joining me. I appreciate it. Yeah, definitely. I want to just get first your reactions to uh, the verdict in the Derek Chauvin murder trial. Um, what what was kind of going through your mind waiting for that verdict and, and what was yesterday like, the, the aftermath? Well, you know, I think in waiting for the verdict, I was having a ton of anxiety Uh, my stomach was hurting. I was just fearful, really. Um, I knew that no matter what the verdict was, there wouldn't really be true justice for George Floyd because he's dead. He was murdered by the state. Um, But I was mainly thinking about the lives that would be affected afterwards if there was a a verdict of not guilty. You know, for me, um, I feel like one, one murder cop going to prison isn't true justice it is accountability and i'm relieved that that happened but you know if he ended up being acquitted or anything like that there would have been another uprising with a lot of these new anti-protest bills um that are out right now there would have been a lot of more lives taken a lot more lives going to jail a lot of more people suffering and um and so i was just very worried about about that and so um i'm very relieved that he was found guilty on all charges but there was still a lot of emotion you know, I cried a lot when I heard that because I thought back to last summer being here in Orlando, um, being, a, a, you know, standing next to other organizers and other protesters, being out there every night. Just it kind of all came to me in a flash, um, all the negative times, all the beautiful times. And and um, it's just it's 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 beautiful, but it's also tragic. And it's also the saddest thing in the world that we were all huddled around our phones and our televisions, waiting to see if a murderous cop would be sent to prison when there's a video of him killing the person. And speaking of which, the the sentence hasn't come down yet, so I guess the the story isn't over yet, is it? Yeah, the story isn't over yet. And even after the sentence, you know, when when he does go to jail, prison, um, it's still not over because there's tons of folks who haven't gotten um, any kind of accountability when we look at cases like Breonna Taylor, or even here in Orlando, Florida, Salathius Melvin, um, there are still hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands of stories where there has been no accountability. So the story continues because it's always been more than George Floyd. And we all know that George Floyd um, provided movement and, and showed us just how messed up this system is. And then people got into it and realized, wow, there are a ton of people who have gone through what George Floyd went through. And um, they haven't received justice or any kind of accountability. And so looking forward, we're, we're, you know, optimistic about the future. We do believe that, like, the best is yet to come as far as building a world where there's justice for all people. One of the people at the vigil last night noted that, uh, you know, just as that vigil was wrapping up, there was more details coming through of that breaking news story in Ohio, a 15-year-old shot and killed by police. Um, is it difficult to be optimistic about the future when the the headlines just like that just keep emerging? 
it it is difficult to be optimistic. And you know, I'll say what makes me optimistic isn't necessarily the folks in power. It's the people that I surround myself with. It's my community. You know, I live in a state that gets a lot of backlash. You know, people like to talk a lot of crap about Florida. Um, but when I go out to these protests, when I'm out canvassing and speaking with folks, speaking with voters, speaking with, with human beings, um, that's where I get my hope from. I look around at my community and I said this last night, look, I believe in Florida because I believe in us. Like I believe in the people, the organizers that are fighting to make a difference. And so it is difficult, especially as a black man who lives in the South, who lives in Florida. Um, but what I'll say is this, you know, we have to look forward. And for me personally, and this is a personal decision, I have to be optimistic. You know, I, I really do. Because the other option is to live in despair and um, and to live in fear. And love and courage is when we fight for what's right, despite how fearful we are. Um, it's not about not being fearful. It's about using your fear for something great. That actually struck me listening to you talk at the vigil too. You're kind of imploring the the people there to have faith in Florida as you do or believe in Florida. Um, is that something you've kind of thought about and spoken about in the past or is that just kind of come to you recently? I think that's come to me a lot recently. You know, I'll be honest. I was born and raised in Florida. I moved out for a few years to work on campaigns and, and work on different organizations. And I came back a few years ago. Um, and to be honest, up until that point, I really wanted to move out, you know, high school and college, you know, I want to move out, I want to go to LA, I want to go to New York, I want to get out of Florida. Um, but then I really started getting involved in the local organizing here in my hometown and getting to meet beautiful people and getting to meet folks who have the same experience as me or similar experiences as me as a, as a black person living in Florida. And over the past few years, that's really brought me to, to this opinion and to, and to this, what I believe is a fact that Florida doesn't get enough credit as far as the people that live in it. Um, and, you know, so I just, I like to say that. And, and yesterday was actually the first time I said something like that at a protest, because I think a lot of times folks get bogged down and they get discouraged about their hometown because of HB1 or the state legislature trying to push an anti-trans bill or um, just, you know, a litany of things that happen here in Florida that might strike us as, as bad and that, because they are bad. And what I want folks to remember is that we're a community of people just like anywhere else. Um, and within that community, there's some amazing people and we can't give up on them. And I suppose to uh, March for Our Lives, which you, you are part of, that movement emerged from Florida out of out of a terrible event. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And, and you know, from Parkland, Florida. And, you know, we have a unique experience as March for Our Lives because we are the product of our unique experience is this. A shooter went into a high school. And the person who was there that was meant to protect the students, the SRO, fled, left. Um, and so we have the experience of, you know, seeing the system when it doesn't work as well from that point of view. And so, um, yeah, this movement began here in Florida. There are so many amazing movements that began in Florida. We look at Trayvon Martin and what came out of that, uh, the Dream Defenders, uh, sparking a national outrage. You know, movements build off of one another. These are high points that inspire convictions in individuals, which push them to change their life forever and say, I'm going to fight for justice. I might not be an organizer my whole life, but when I go work here or if I become a CEO there or if I'm in the military or whatever, I'm going to see the world through the eyes of the most vulnerable. And 
I thank the movement that sparked after Trayvon Martin or after Ferguson or after George Floyd for, you know, reminding me to, to see the world like that. Were you paying a lot of attention to the Trayvon Martin case as it happened? Um, I'll say I, I think just as much as like anyone else in the country, I wasn't wildly involved. I was, I was pretty young. I'm 24 right now. Uh, but what I'll say is right after when I saw the Dream Defenders go to Tallahassee, when I saw a lot of that happen, um, that really sparked something in me um, and really got me to start looking into racial justice. You know, I've always been involved in gun violence prevention. Um, and even though I'm a, I'm a black man, I'm adopted and I was born and raised in the suburbs here in South Orlando, Florida. Um, and so what we would consider urban or everyday gun violence, I didn't know much about it. Um, but after Trayvon Martin, that really struck me. I mean, is there a certain symmetry or, or when you reflect on what happened back in 2012 with the killing of Trayvon Martin and a, a verdict the year after in that case, which disappointed a lot of people who worked to to bring attention to the case and then push for justice for Trayvon Martin's family and then reflecting on what happened with the uh, the case against former Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin, is there, is there some kind of sense of change happening on a a longer term or a, or a bigger scale? Definitely, 100%. And like I said before, movements build off of one another. You know, just as an example, I don't think someone like AOC or Bernie Sanders would be at the stature that there are right now if it wasn't for movements like Occupy Wall Street that happened in early 2000s where people started to think about wealth inequality. Um, same thing with racial justice. Uh, Ferguson, Trayvon Martin, um, all of these horrible shootings that have happened, you know, the um, in Charleston, everything has been pushing this nation a little bit more to think about racial justice and to think about how we can, again, think about the folks most at risk. And so I think, and, and it's sad to think about, but all these past tragedies have pushed the nation to be in a place where when George Floyd was murdered and that video hit the internet, it was almost like a breaking point for many folks in this nation. And, you know, when I was out protesting with folks, most of the organizers had never organized before that summer. It was their first time being out there. And, you know, I was curious and I asked a lot of them, like, why'd you come out? And they said, because I've always said I was going to come out and I never did. And then I saw that video and I had to. I just can't explain it. I had to. And that's what organizing is about. Like, folks seeing something or hearing something, a call to action and saying, yes, I'm going to I'm going to fight for justice. One thing that struck me, too, about talking to some of the other people at the vigil was they had been at a lot of the protests over the summer and and so there was a sense of kind of continuity or consistency about the uh their efforts to to bring attention to some of these cases that uh, the cases that you highlighted at the vigil does it feel different then i mean do you feel like there is more commitment in some ways to to the movement yeah so like any other massive uprising there's going to be a peak you know the beginning where there's 20,000, tens of thousands of people, millions of folks across the nation um, hitting the streets, coming together in outrage. And then we begin to hit a valley. And I think this is important because a lot of folks will think, oh, if there's not a million people in the streets, no one cares. And that's not true. People still care. Um, But this is when we see the real community grassroots work start to go into effect. And what we've seen over the past few months is that very thing happening. You know, last night, that vigil was planned in about 90 minutes. I mean, right after the verdict came out, we have a group chat. We said, let's let's get together 
And we, you know, we had a pretty good crowd, I'd say around 40 to 50 people out there last night. All those folks, may, most of those folks are people who have been doing work for the past few months, even when it hasn't been in the news. And that's what really shows how powerful a movement is, not what it's doing when it's at its peak and when it's in the news, but what people are doing when it's not in the news, how people are organizing and making a difference. And if we, you know, go back a few, uh, like a few weeks, we just had a huge rally at uh, Tinker Field against HB1 for Black Lives as well, um, with about 450 people coming out. And so, and it was a drive-in rally, so COVID safe for anyone wondering. <laughs> but what I mean by that is like, you know, we have to look at organizing as work that doesn't just happen when there's high moments, it happens all the time. Whether it's mutual aid, which is us helping our own community, or political education, registering folks to vote, we gotta do it all. We gotta vote, but we also gotta hit the streets, and we also gotta educate folks. Okay, so what about HB1 or the the law that has now been signed by the governor, the Combating Public Disorder Bill? We talked about this, I, I talked to you a couple of weeks ago about it. You expressed a lot of the concerns that I've been hearing from uh, activists and people who, who are working for social justice and, and freedom of speech and other things. Now that the bill is a law, what now do you... Do you kind of move forward with a little bit of hesitation? Do you think about the next big event and, and worry about how that may play out with local law enforcement? How, how does this all, what does this all mean to you? Yeah, definitely. Well, I'll say first off, it, it doesn't change our resolve, right? It doesn't change our drive and what we believe in. All it forces us to do is number one, we have to be more creative when we think about safety. I always say this, one of the most important jobs of organizers on the ground, as far as protests are concerned, are to help ensure the safety of folks who are coming out, especially for the first time, and especially people that are young. I mean, this last summer, we saw 16, 15-year-olds coming out without parents, just coming with their friends because they have a conviction, because they saw the video, because they answered the call to action. So we as organizers want to do our best to ensure folks are safe and that people aren't getting arrested or anything like that unless it's a direct part of the action. And so what we're doing now is taking a step back um, and formula formulating new plans and logistics around how can we keep people safe when we protest? How can we still go out and make our voices heard without going to jail for six months? Now, we'll say we're not going to be complacent with this bill. There's going to be litigation, but we also recognize that this litigation can take a few years um, and so we need to be uh, proactive as we go out. And so we're definitely taking a, a step back to figure out the best way to get back out. But we will be back out. And then come next November, we will also be mobilizing folks to vote these people out of office that have passed this horrible bill, which is meant to silence black folks, meant to silence brown folks, meant to silence people who are out there protesting. I wanted to, to ask as well, I mean, if you kind of think about this on a, on a larger scale and, and thinking about, you know, a movement that that is building momentum. Um, how, how do you square that with the momentum you actually see in terms of, you know, creating a better future and 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 pushing for some of the policies that you want to see enacted? And then you have a bill like this that is pushed through and becomes law. How do you balance those two things? Because they seem like they would be kind of in opposition to each other. Yeah, and, and a lot of times they are in opposition to each other. You know, I'll, I'll say this. I think one of our greatest assets in social justice is going to be a culture change. 
you know, as folks learn, and, and I said this at the beginning of the interview, as folks begin to see the world through the eyes of the most vulnerable, and they begin to use that vision to make every decision they make in life, we're going to see little by little that our society will begin to change the way we make decisions and the people we elect to office. The reason I'm so optimistic um, about our future is because this generation right now, Generation C, is the most progressive generation in the history of humanity. We are the most progressive generation. That excites me because that means even folks that I might not agree with on every issue are more progressive than their folks were or than the previous generations. So as Gen Z and younger folks begin to vote, as we begin to become uh, full members of society, I think we'll, we'll, we'll see a lot of changes in the people we elect to office, um, the way that we have discourse over issues and the way that we think about issues. You know, something that I've been um, explaining to folks is that the age of the single issue voter is slowly going away. People care about a lot of things and they see how all of these issues intersect with each other. And that is key to fighting for liberation for all people. We know that healthcare is an issue that impacts gun violence. We know that our environment impacts poverty. We know that all these issues impact one another. And when we know that, we can craft holistic legislation that can take care of these issues from the root cause before they even begin. Well, Maxwell Frost, National Organizing Director with March for Our Lives, thanks again for your time. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. You have a great day. Still to come, former Florida Supreme Court Justice Peggy Quince says the new bill aimed at combating public disorder is an attempt to stifle free speech. She explains why after the break. This is Intersection, I'm Matthew Petty. The Combating Public Disorder Bill, the so-called anti-riot bill, is now law. Governor Ron DeSantis signed the bill this week, surrounded by invited law enforcement officers. DeSantis and proponents of the bill say it's a necessary safeguard against lawlessness and rioting. Opponents call it unconstitutional and an attack on free speech. Former Florida Supreme Court Justice Peggy Quince, now on the board of directors for the League of Women Voters, has been an outspoken critic of the bill. She joins me to discuss this and other pieces of legislation she says are problematic, including a bill that makes it harder to vote by mail. Well, Justice Quince, thank you so much for joining me. I appreciate it. It's my pleasure. I wanted to ask about some of the legislation under consideration in Tallahassee this session. Now, you've spoken out in opposition to House Bill 1. It's the so-called anti-riot bill, or officially the... uh, um, uh, p- combating public disorder bill. What are your concerns about this piece of legislation? I'm concerned because I really view this bill as an anti-protest bill. Uh, the bill talks about, in vague terms, and I, I, the definition, I believe, is very vague, of riots and uh, mob intimidation. And, uh, you know, it really is so vague that any lawful, peaceful protest, if it is invaded by counter-protesters or simply those who are using the opportunity uh, to loot, uh, can be named a riot. And so you have Mm -hmm. innocent people who um, lawfully exercising their right to assemble and to, uh, you know, protest and try to get the government to listen to their grievances are now swept up in what could be defined as a riot. Then they're gone off to jail, no bail until first appearance. And it just is not the way uh, to deal with 
our First Amendment rights. How do you see it being implemented then? I mean, if if there are issues like that, like how do you think prosecutors would, would deploy this law? Well, I, you know, the prosecutors um, will, of course, look at what the statute says and what what is uh, allowed under the statute and decide whether or not this was a riot, these people were involved in a riot, and then charge them accordingly. Um, and I'm not sure how they would view the fact that these people had a permit to um, gather. Then other people who were opposed to uh, the purpose of that gathering may come in and decide that they want to um, start some trouble. Mm-hmm. The prosecutors are looking at the whole thing. So it seems to me that we end up with citizens having to try to prove that they were not a part of, of what could be considered a riot. And it only takes three people uh, for a gathering to be called a riot or nine mm-hmm. people for it to be called an aggravated riot. Do and you... It, it, you end up, in my estimation, with uh, more people of being prosecuted. We have more people in our criminal justice system at a time when we should be looking at criminal justice reform. Mm -hmm. Do you anticipate there could be legal challenges to this then, either at the state or or even the federal level down the track sometime? I'm sure there will be. but But the problem is, generally, legal actions take some time. So in the interim, what you have is people who may be prosecuted under a law, which may or may not in the future be declared unconstitutional. There's also elements of the bill, and I think you've you've uh, spoken out about this aspect too, Justice Quince, kind of amplifying or elevating some uh, some things from misdemeanor to felony, which which has sort of a knock-on effect, right? That 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 creates some some problems for people who are caught up in that. Yeah, it does. It, it not only increases our p- prison population, but we end up having more people with felony convictions, possibly, and then that falls into: Are their voting rights going to now? Uh, be at issue? Are they Mm -hmm. going to be facing a possible um, going through all the issues you have to go through in order to have your voting rights restored? But I think even more damaging in this bill is the affirmative defense that they have put in there for people who injure those who are protesting potentially and if it's declared a riot, then they have an affirmative defense if they injure them. And we know, we have seen in many of these situations where someone comes in and plows a car or a truck into protesters. Mm-hmm. So this affirmative defense, to me, is also very troubling. 
You mentioned uh, the, the issue of voting too as a, as a potential side effect of um, you know more felony convictions, and, and the League of Women Voters, of course, has also spoken out, out as you have against uh, Senate Bill ninety, saying it would curb voter access by restricting drop boxes, among other things. Um, what do you make of this bill? Well, I think it's a voter suppression bill. When you look at the fact that the state of Florida had a really good 2020 election, there were no serious problems with Florida's 2020 election. We had our uh, numbers uh, out before the end of the night. There has been no evidence presented that there was a problem. We had a record voter turnout. We had record use of mail-in ballots. And part of that, of course, has to do with uh, the fact that we were in a, or in, and still are, in a pandemic. Mm-hmm. People had lost faith in our uh, mail system. So we had really a great turnout with mail-in ballots and the use of drop boxes. And now, under those circumstances, when there were no perceived problems with that procedure, we are now in the process of trying to change that and make it more difficult for citizens to use drop boxes. It's very unnecessary. Of course, the proponents of the bill say, well, look, this is just about safeguarding against future concerns. Does that seem like a, like a good faith argument to be making about this? Well, what, what future concern, what are the future concerns? Well, what, what future concern, what are the future concerns? There were no, there were no problems with the, the way it was used in the 2020 election. What is the future concern? I mean, the, the the way I've heard it articulated, and and this is you know the words of, for example, Senator Dennis Baxley, not mine, is that um, there were no problems this time around. We want to make sure there are there's no chance of any problems at any point in the future. Why are you anticipating a problem? There's no reason to make it more onerous on the voters because there might there's a vague possibility of a problem in the future. Mm-hmm. Speaking of voting, Tim, we could get two new congressional seats in Florida. Are you? Do you think there may be a fight over redistricting and, and how that sort of shapes out? Well, I certainly think back on the last redistricting uh, that took place in this state, and there certainly was a fight. You know, we have a fair districts amendment that the, the people of this state voted on, and... We hope and we are going to be asking the legislators to follow the dictates of that fair districts amendment. Do you think they will? In the last redistricting, and it had, of course, to go to court, and it was uh, a multi-year battle. Mm -hmm. So uh, I'll leave it at that. It was not. <laughs> it was not uh, strictly followed in the last redistricting process. Mm-hmm. Um, Justice Quince, I wanted to pivot a little bit and just kind of ask about your career path. You're a zoology major. How did you go from that to to the law? 
Well, uh, I uh, attended uh, college, undergraduate school in Washington, D.C. in the uh, 60s, beginning of the 70s. And there was a lot going on in our country at that time. We had all the protests across the country about the war in Vietnam. We had the uh, killing of the students at Kent State. Students all over the country were sitting in at, at college administration buildings. All of these items led me to the law. And that's how I pivoted from uh, wanting to go to medical school to going to law school. Mm-hmm. Flash forward to um, to the 90s, and, and you, you were a trailblazer as the first African-American female to be appointed to one of the district courts of appeal in 93, and then the first African-American woman to head any branch of Florida government when you became the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court in Florida in 2008. When you reflect on, on that and thinking about where we are now, um, how do you think Florida is doing as far as diversity and leadership, whether it's in the law or in government or in the court system? Well, for a while, I thought the state of Florida was doing quite well. Uh, we had, I, I believe, uh, record numbers of uh, people uh, of color uh, on our benches. For example, we had a, a black uh, judge on all of the district courts of appeal at one time. Now, mm-hmm. now we only have a black judge on two of our five district courts of appeal. Uh, so in, in some, and there, of course, there's no black justice on the Florida uh, Supreme Court. So in some ways we, uh, you know, we seem to be uh, falling behind in our uh, in diversity in this state. Mm-hmm. I wanted to ask you too, um, Justice Quince, about 2008 when you became Chief Justice. The nation was then plummeting into recession. We're in a different kind of recession now, of course. Uh, but back then, you did propose some solutions from the courts to help ease the mortgage foreclosure crisis. I'm wondering what your thoughts are about the role the courts could be playing in the current crisis, if there's some something that could be done there with regard to rent relief, for example. Well, I, I think that um, certainly the courts are trying to ease the situation by allowing you know, a lot of uh, proceedings uh, to happen remotely. And so I think that's, that's a good thing. We certainly want to make sure our citizens are safe. But as far as uh, the rent uh, situation is concerned, uh, it's a little different, I'm not, uh, I think. But mm-hmm. to tell you the truth, um, people are in the same kind of situation, whether you are paying for a house or whether you are renting a house, you're still in the same situation if you have lost your job and you now find yourself uh, in a a situation where uh, you just can't keep up. And I Mm -hmm. think uh, that the courts could look to uh, to, uh, the uh, mortgage uh, foreclosure uh, issues that were brought out by the that task force 
and see if something can, in fact, be done. And I'm not sure that that issue has been brought to their uh, attention or not. Uh, I'm not, you know, of course, a part of that uh, court anymore. But I'm sure sure if there is something that can be done, that the court will uh, do its best to try to address it. Mm -hmm. Uh, Finally, Justice Quince, you know, uh, you're retired now, but um, it seems like your role with the uh, League of Women Voters is going to keep you fairly busy, especially when you consider the range of of legislation that's being proposed in Tallahassee and and how that may shake out. Yeah, uh, you know, I feel as if, uh, you know, I still have to be involved in my community. I, I I still have to, well, I couldn't speak out on various issues when I was a judge or a justice, but as a private citizen, it is my duty and obligation to make sure that the citizens of my community, the citizens of my state and country, you know, get what we, that they rightfully deserve, that their rights are preserved. And so that's why I spend my time uh, trying to analyze and talk to people about what's going on as far as legislation is concerned, what goes on when we have uh, issues on the ballot. Um, Like uh, last year, we had six or seven uh, proposed constitutional amendments. And so I Mm -hmm. felt uh, that it was a part of my duty as a citizen to look at those proposals and try to determine what would be the ramifications of of the passage or non-passage of those and let people know um, what they were voting for or against. It can be pretty complicated with that that long ballot, for sure. Well, um, Justice Peggy Quince, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate you uh, making the time to speak to me. Uh, It was my pleasure. Take care. Up next, a peek into the future of transportation in Orlando. The city's new transportation director, Tanya Wilder, joins us to chat about flying taxis, a new park under I-4, and trying to solve the age-old problem of pedestrian safety. We're back in a minute. This is Intersection. I'm Matthew Petty. Everyone who drives on I-4 knows the infamous I-4 eyesore, that perpetually incomplete building that looms over the road that commuters love to hate. But what about the space under I-4? The city of Orlando has plans to turn what was once a parking lot under part of I-4 into a park. The future of urban design in the city beautiful also includes Jetson-esque flying taxis and more earthly modes of transport like buses, trains and bikes, of course. Joining me to talk about tying all these threads together is the city's new transportation director, Tanya Wilder. She took on the role just a few months ago. Tanya, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Matt. So this is a new role for you, but you've been with the city uh, in a transportation planning capacity for some time, right? So you have a pretty good idea of what works and what doesn't as far as transportation goes in the city of Orlando? Yes. What do you think the biggest challenges are going to be then? I mean, you've you've been in the role, what, a couple of months now? Yes, I have been in, in my position for since February. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think when people think about transportation in Orlando, I-4 is something that comes to mind. We've had the I-4 Ultimate Project ongoing for a few years now. Um, how does that sort of fit into the bigger picture of Orlando's transportation design into the future? Well, with expressway expansion around us, with Ultimate I-4, we're investing in making our local roads smarter so we can keep cars moving. 
Um, but also planting roads to move cars around us is only part of the picture. The other is creating a sense of place by preserving the community around the roads. For example, for example, Orlando is planning on what happens after Ultimate I-4 and under I is a perfect example. Um, it is a highly active and vibrant urban park below and around I-4, and this park will be transformative for the downtown area. What What's going to be growing down there? Like, Do you have to pick plants that thrive with a lack of sunlight? Um, actually, it's very exciting. It's... Um, it's going to be it's going to be a place for people to gather, performance spaces, um, sports courts, play areas, vendor opportunities, and also local heritage experiences. Um, and so the concept began actually about five years ago, and now we're moving forward with the, with the design, and um, construction will start around. Um, 2021 and excuse me construction will start at the end of 2022 Mm -hmm. and so it's a it's a visionary plan um and again in utilizing the space um below i4 is it kind of like a a mirror image in some ways of what you see in new york city with the the high line which is you know that the repurposed train line which has become a very popular urban park do you kind of see that as ideally what uh under eye would be Yes, that was one of the um, places that we looked at as an example. Mm-hmm. Is that is it a sort of different way to look at transportation planning now than you than what the job might have entailed, say, you know, twenty, thirty years ago? Like, kind of thinking more holistically about it rather than just getting people from A to B. Most definitely. Um, I mean, Orlando's been a, always been a place of innovation, and um, twenty, thirty years ago, uh, most people, as we know, relied on their cars, but now. People want options, and um, that's what our job here is to provide those options for people to get to where they want to go in a safe way. Mm -hmm. And I suppose 2020 was a pretty unusual year for transportation. You suddenly had a lot of people uh, staying in place, working from home. And I'm wondering, too, if the post-pandemic future, like if if that's going to change things dramatically in terms of what the city might look like, you know, have there been no pandemic? Are you still expecting to see maybe fewer people on the roads, more people working from home? And I'm wonder, wondering what that means for the the transportation plan long term. Well, I think what we'll see is a hybrid. I think we'll see people still working from home, but also people coming to work. Um, and so what that means for the transportation department is for us to be continue to be innovative and creative and find um, again places of areas for placemaking. Um, we are going to be putting in more uh, crosswalks, raised crosswalks that will slow cars down in our neighborhoods. Um, we are looking at redesigning major streets with new traffic calming solutions. Uh, for example, we're partnering with um, the Florida Department on Transportation on transforming Robinson Street. Mm-hmm. And. Has that been a challenge in the past just because it's a a state road rather than a city road, so you can't exactly just do whatever you want with it? Yeah, it's been a collaborative effort, um, and it's it's been a a great way to understand how Florida Department works and then how we work and collaborating together. And um, I I think we're going to see amazing things, again, along Robinson Street and other places throughout the city. Mm Mm-hmm. 
what kind of input for a project like that do you get from businesses and, and people who, who use that as a way to get to and from downtown? Because there was an experiment, um, um, well, I want to say a couple of years back with uh, Curry Ford, where, they, where a bike claim was put in temporarily. And um, I mean, the, the feedback that, that I heard from people wasn't great in terms of motorists just not being very happy with it at all. So like, how do you sort of move forward with a project like this, which is going to have an impact on the way people travel and and make sure that people don't respond to it in a way that's negative? Well, I think that, um, you know, it all starts with communication. And what we have done with the Robinson Street concept is had, we've had workshops um, in partnership with the Florida Department of Transportation. And so we're trying to get the word out, coming up with some, again, design, preliminary design, um, and then, you know, com- getting the feedback from people that attend those workshops and then going to the next stage of, of what it would look like conceptually. Mm-hmm. And um, but it, it's just letting people know that, you know, there are changes that, that the city is trying to do and it's with our best intentions to improve our streets. And is the goal for Robinson just to get the traffic to, you know, the cars to drive a little slower? Well, again, it, I think it's a sense of place. Um, if you look at Edgewater Drive, um, when, when that transformed the, that whole area um, mm-hmm. within College Park. And so when you have people coming from, for example, from, from out of the downtown area, coming into the downtown area, going towards Orange Avenue on Robinson Street, you know, it will be a better sense of place, um, less probably less less you know speeding along there and mm-hmm. um more walkability i want to ask too about the walkability as it as it relates to safety and you mentioned some of the things that that you're working on in terms of uh, traffic calming like uh um design or, or crosswalks things which are good for pedestrians and may slow the traffic down a wee bit because orlando has featured pretty high on that list of uh places where it is not particularly safe to walk or ride a bike in, in terms of the uh, dangerous by design report. Um, I mean, is engineering the way through this? Because there are, there are a range of different ways you can tackle pedestrian and bike safety, right? Correct. And I think engineering is one way, but again, it all starts with communication. And um, we are passionately committed and invested to find ways to make Orlando safer for people who walk or ride. And um, Vision Zero is... Um, a, a plan that we want to implement um, where zero fatalities by 2040, and um, and that's just one example. And so, from an engineering standpoint, we we are looking to put in more lighting, more raised cro- crosswalks, but also um, the will. It's going to take a lot of will to reduce speed along some of our neighborhood roads as well. Do you think drivers are getting better uh, because that those crosswalk enforcements have been going for a few years now is it are you seeing an impact from that yes we we have seen an impact most definitely mm-hmm. and do you, are you a cyclist as well tanya no i'm not <laughs> i i like to walk myself uh-huh so what as as a pedestrian uh, i mean do you, when you sort of get out and walk around are you kind of looking at it from a are you just getting from a to b or are you always sort of thinking what would be a better way to design the street or what works and what doesn't Yes, that that does come to my mind as far as um, ad- 
when, when I walk, it's for leisure. And so um, it, you do have a view of how things are planned um, and how we can improve upon our plans. Mm-hmm. One thing I've noticed uh, quite a lot is there's, there's more people getting around in interesting ways, like those one-wheel um, uh, powered uh, skateboards seem to be quite popular now. So as, as you think about the sort of pedestrian and, uh, you know, the non-motor motor vehicle ways of getting around, you have to think about those kind of future transportation or transportation now, which is a little bit different from it would have been, say, you know, 10 years ago. Most definitely. And and, and that's our role here is is to look at different ways. For example, like you said, the, the skateboard, um, you know, as you know, we did the e-scooters and the e-bikes and, mm-hmm. and what's to come in the future. Um, we don't all know, but autonomous vehicles is, is something that we all um, are aware of. Um, the vertical, vertical takeoff and landing, um, air taxi <laughs> could be, you know, another reality. And again, Orlando is a place of innovation. So we welcome all types of uh, choices. That does seem a little bit sort of Jetson-esque, right, the notion of uh, flying taxis. But there's, there are plans underway to have something like that developed in Lake Nono. Correct, yes. And how, does, how would that sort of mesh in with the rest of Orlando? Well, again, um, Lake Nona being within the city and, um, you know, we could look at ways to get uh, business travelers um, from, you know, that's, imagine them coming from the airport to Lake Nona, them hopping on this air taxi and coming to downtown for a business event and then attending um, an event at Dr. Phillips Performing Arts Center at mm-hmm. night. What about the uh, railway too? I mean, you, we have SunRail, there's there's work being done on um, Brightline to get that into the airport and, and uh, out to Disney as well. Um, what's your assessment of how SunRail kind of fits into the transportation picture? Well, again, um, you know, Orlando um, and the mayor has always been a strong advocate for SunRail since since the beginning, and so we're excited to see the expansion from DeBerry to DeLand and um, the ultimate completion of that 61-mile east-west um, system, and then ultimately to go into the airport for SunRail to go in the airport and, and create that north-south connectivity. Mm-hmm. But what about the cost, though? Because some of that cost gets transferred over from the the Department of Transportation at some point, right? So, is that something you have to fret over or fret about or worry about going forward? Well, that's that's one thing we do need to definitely consider is the financial component. Um, but we come from a region of collaboration, and um, we find ways, especially the mayor and his vision, as we look at the the venues and and how that happened, or even SunRail. Um, it, it did not take – it did not pass the first time around in the state legislature. And so where there's a will, there's a way, as mm-hmm. the saying goes. Yeah, right. <laughs> but back to uh, cycling, too. I mean, one thing I've noticed uh, in the time I've been in Orlando is there, the network of cycle trails has gotten a lot better. Like there's there's definitely more connectivity now than there was. Um, and that's interesting when you, you kind of pair that, that up against the – these reports which say Orlando still isn't a particularly safe place to, to ride a bike. So at some point, do you see those two things kind of coming together and, and the, the cycle trail is actually having a positive, more of a positive impact on cycle safety and, and making it safer for people to get around by other means other than in your car? 
Most definitely. I mean, it, as a city, we continue to explore um, a more extensive trail network. And for example, completing the downtown loop by 2024. Um, and, and we are looking at and finding ways that that make it safer for cyclists and those who also walk. Mm -hmm. So what does the next uh, year look like for you, Tanya? What, what projects do you think will, will actually uh, be finished by 2021 and what are you kind of looking forward to beyond that? Well, there are a lot of exciting plant, um, projects that we have ongoing. And so um, I think the next year is just an opportunity to implement some projects, I mean, some of them are such as the raised crosswalks, um, but we, with our eye to the future, and it is transitioning from the state to the local for SunRail, it is looking at um, other multimodal solutions. Um, and then also just working along with our community and regional partners. Mm -hmm. The crosswalks too. I mean, one thing I've noticed is that there's a little more uh, sort of visual design going into them, like the the milk district crosswalks shaped like milk cartons. Does that actually have a? Is there an engineering aspect to that as well? Does that make people slow down and pay more attention? It does. It does raise raise awareness, and it's within the engineering um, code. <laughs> so it is exciting. Again, um, from a place of innovation, um, coming up with the milk jugs and and mm -hmm. putting that down as a crosswalk and there's other places that that we have that and so we'll continue to explore and find ways to be creative to get folks to slow down and um and just pause well tanya wilder is the transportation director for the city of orlando thanks so much for your time thank you Support for Intersection comes from Advent Health and from our listeners. Production assistance for this show from Clarissa Moon. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. And you can find archived episodes on our website, wmfe.org slash intersection. I'm Matthew Petty. Thanks for listening.